Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. This is First Kill, number one. First Kill was 19 years old. Name? I don't know. I don't give a fuck. First Kill was nice. This is just one of several scenes captured on a videotape, home movie, made by one of the most evil, cold-blooded, violent killers of our time. This sick, twisted story takes place in the bi-state area of Missouri and Illinois. The videotape was found in the killer's home during the execution of a search warrant. The tape was so horrific that the St. Louis police chief, Joe Makwa, requested psychological counseling for all employees who viewed the tape. These home movies depict a man brutalizing, humiliating, degrading, and in some cases, murdering a number of women. It all started in July of 2000, when prostitutes in St. Louis, Missouri, and neighboring East St. Louis, Illinois, began turning up dead. Missouri and Illinois are separated by the Mississippi River, with Missouri on the west and Illinois on the east. East St. Louis, Illinois is directly across the river from St. Louis, Missouri, and the Gateway Arch National Park. All of the murder victims were eventually identified as black females with criminal records for drug use and prostitution. They were known to work in the North Broadway Stroll area in the city of St. Louis. The Stroll is a strip of Broadway just north of St. Louis that's riddled with crack houses and prostitution. It was here that these women would stroll up and down the sidewalk looking for a customer. On July 31st, 2000, detectives were assigned to investigate a body which had been found dumped off of 29th and Piggott in East St. Louis. In a remote grassy area was the body of 61-year-old Mary Shields. At the time, investigators had no way of knowing that finding Mary's body was just the beginning of a horrible nightmare. Once again, on March 24th, 2001, about eight months after Mary Shields' body was found, investigators are dispatched to another body dump. A young female is found nude and dumped off of Highway 64 at mile marker 46.5. She was eventually identified using a still shot taken from the killer's home movie. Her name is Cassandra Walker and she was 19 years old. A week goes by before the dumped body of another unknown female is found. On April 1st, 2001, detectives are set to investigate the discovery at Washington Park in St. Louis, Missouri. The body is later identified as 34-year-old Alyssa Greenwade. She was a mother of two and just recently out of jail and back on crack. Reverend Inuka Mwanguzi, the minister in a local church in a rough St. Louis neighborhood, saw firsthand how hard life is for these women on the streets 
Wanguzi did community outreach, and Alyssa was one of the women she tried to help. Alyssa wanted to get off the streets, but her addiction was just too strong. But when Alyssa wasn't hustling, she would stay with Mwanguzi for short periods of time. Then one night, a late night phone call woke Mwanguzi up. It was Alyssa calling and she was very excited. She wanted Mwanguzi to speak to a man on the phone, a man she had just met that night and really liked. So Mwanguzi agreed. It was an awkward conversation, but the man assured Mwanguzi that she didn't have to worry about Alyssa. She would be safe with him. Nine hours later, Alyssa was found dead, partially clothed, and dumped on a back road. She had been tied up, tortured, and strangled. Only days later, on April 4, 2001, a woman is found nude and near death in East St. Louis, Illinois, near First and St. Clair Avenue. She's later identified as 44-year-old Barbara Sparks. Barbara is never able to help police identify her attacker. The attack on Barbara was so brutal that she never recovered. She was left with brain damage that was so severe she's no longer capable of meaningful communication. She's now a ward of the state of Illinois and lives in a facility for the disabled. She is believed to be one of Travis's victims. On May 15, 2001, the body of 36-year-old Teresa Sweetie Wilson is found off of Highway 367, north of Highway 94 in St. Charles County. When she was found, she was naked and so decomposed that it wasn't possible to determine a specific cause of death. Nobody had reported her missing, but authorities were able to obtain a fingerprint and matched it to one from one of her previous arrests. Teresa's horrific assault and death is captured on videotape by her killer. The body count is mounting. The killer was murdering and dumping bodies in both Illinois and Missouri. All of the victims were identified as black females. Most of them had criminal records for drug use and prostitution. They were being dumped along the roadways and on both sides of the Mississippi River. Some of the victims had been strangled beaten and bound with rope or some type of adhesive, probably duct tape, all of the women had died a violent and brutal death. It was May 23, 2001, when the body of 46-year-old Betty James was found nude and discarded in an alley. From tire impressions on her leg, it was obvious that she had been run over by a car. According to her autopsy report, she had been strangled and her body showed signs of adhesive substance on her eyes, wrists, and arms. She was identified when police recognized her on a videotape belonging to her killer. A whole month passes before the body of 36-year-old Verona Thompson is found. It's June 29, 2001, when her body is found just 16 feet from where Teresa Wilson's body was found, off of Highway 367, north of Highway 94 in St. Charles County. At this point, there are already six women found dead, and police have no real leads. But they are coming to terms with the fact that they most likely are dealing with a serial killer. A few weeks later, on August 25, 2001, the body of 50-year-old Yvonne Cruz was found at 1100 St. Clair Avenue 
East St. Louis, Illinois. Yvonne's body showed signs of ligature marks on her wrists and blunt force trauma. Because the killer was dumping bodies in multiple jurisdictions, in September of 2001, a multi-jurisdictional task force was established. The task force members were as follows. From Illinois, there was the State Police, St. Clair County Sheriff's Office, Alton Police, East St. Louis Police, and Cahokia Police. From Missouri, there was St. Charles Sheriff's Office and the Jennings Police. Also included was the FBI as well as other specialists, DNA technicians, homicide and vice detectives, and a large number of other technicians and analysts from Missouri. Detectives were once again called out to investigate the discovery of another body. On October 8, 2001, at 15th Street and Converse Avenue in East St. Louis, Illinois, the body of 33-year-old Brenda Beasley was found. Brenda was completely nude except for a pair of jeans around her ankles. Her body, like others that were found, had evidence of ligature marks found around her wrists and ankles, but in her case, no other signs of blunt force trauma. After almost three months, another body is found by highway workers. It's January 31st, 2002, when detectives head out to an area off of I-64 at Silver Creek, mile marker 22, to investigate. They found skeletal remains. The medical examiner was able to establish that this was the body of a black female who to this day is still unidentified. She is referred to as skeletal remains number one. About six weeks later, on March 11, 2002, highway workers find another set of skeletal remains. The remains were found in a creek along I-70, one mile west of Illinois State Route 143 at Silver Creek. The medical examiner was able to determine that the remains, again, were that of a black female in her 30s to 40s. To this day, she is still unidentified. She is referred to as skeletal remains number two. A couple weeks later, yet another call comes in from highway workers. These highway workers probably need some counseling. It's March 28, 2002, and another set of skeletal remains have been found along Highway 3 near Gall Road, Columbia, Illinois. Again, the medical examiner determined that the victim was a black female between the ages of 28 and 45. She had been dead six months to a year. This woman also remains unidentified and is referred to as skeletal remains number three. It is believed that these women were the victims of their serial killer. One year and 10 months after the first body was found, police get an incredible break. On May 19, 2002, Bill Smith, a reporter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, wrote an article about Teresa Wilson, one of the homicide victims. Smith wanted to bring attention to the women in the area who were being murdered. He wanted to humanize them. In his article, he spoke of Teresa being a mom and a loving mother. Apparently, this really pissed the killer off. In his eyes, these women were just whores and less than human. Bill Smith's article spurred the killer on to write a letter to the reporter. 
The letter was postmarked May 21st, 2002, and was received by Bill Smith on May 24th, 2002. According to the book by State Strangler, the letter read, quote, Dear Bill, nice sob story about Teresa Wilson. Write one about Green Wave. Write a good one and I'll tell you where many others are. To prove I'm real, here are the directions to number 17. Search within 50 yard radius from the X and put the story in the Sunday paper like the last." Unquote. Included with the letter was a printout of a computer-generated map that depicted a location in St. Charles County, Missouri. There was actually an X on the map which directed detectives to Highway 67 and St. Charles Street in West Altman. It was close to 7 p.m. on May 24, 2002, when Bill Smith contacted police and let them know that he had received an anonymous letter, a letter that may be from the killer. He explained to police that the letter was actually addressed to him at the paper. The stamp on the envelope was placed upside down and had a return address of I Thraldom. I Thraldom is a website on the dark web that shows graphic pictures of partially dressed and nude women in chains and assorted torture devices. On May 25, 2002, the very next day, armed with the map that came with the anonymous letter, law enforcement went to the location where X marked the spot and, in a very short period of time, found a human skull. Not far from the skull, down an embankment, the rest of the remains were found, except for the hands and feet. These were skeletal remains and had been there long enough that no tissue had been left. The medical examiner determined that the victim was a black female, approximately 30 to 40 years old. Later, as investigators were reviewing the tapes, one investigator thought that one of the women on this tape may be their missing person, skeletal remains number four. The investigator was right. Skeletal remains number four was identified using DNA as Kelly Johnson. In an attempt to identify the remaining skeletal remains of these women, authorities had Joe Seferman from the Illinois State Police Forensic Science Laboratory in Charleston, Illinois, develop a facial reconstruction for each one of the victims. Unfortunately, three of the women are still unidentified. The FBI was part of the multi-jurisdictional task force, and they conducted the search into the origins of the letter and map. Although the killer had trimmed the map around the border to remove any identifying characteristics, they were still able to determine the map was generated by Expedia.com. From here, authorities were informed that users could be tracked through Microsoft. After obtaining a warrant from Microsoft, they were about to get the name of their killer. On June 3rd, 2002, based on the user's IP address, Microsoft was able to pinpoint the one and only user to generate that map. They provided the FBI with the person's user ID and their account information. This included the user's name, address, and phone number. The person who sent the anonymous letter and generated the Expedia map was Maury Travis of Ferguson, Missouri. So, who is Maury Travis? 
Travis was born October 25, 1965, the son of Sandra and Michael. His nickname was Toby. At the time of his arrest, he was 36 years old. Detectives stated that they didn't find anything in Travis's past that would explain his current behavior. There's no record of child abuse, troubled family relationships, or anything else that may have caused Travis to go down this violent and disturbing path. Travis grew up in public housing from 1971 to 1975. When he was 10, his family moved away from public housing and into a simple house in Ferguson, Missouri. Travis remembers his mom saying she wanted to get away from all the drugs and crime. His parents divorced in 1978, but his mother remarried. She divorced again in 1993. Travis isn't well remembered from his early years, but those that do remember him say he was a quiet and polite young boy. He graduated high school and then went on to serve in the Army Reserve, working as a medical and dental assistant. In 1987, at the age of 22, Travis enrolled at Morris Brown College in Atlanta. It was about this time that Travis claims to have developed a $300 a day cocaine habit. In order to support his habit, he robbed five shoe stores in St. Louis over an eight-day period. He was caught, arrested, and pled guilty to the robberies. He told the judge he was so strung out that he barely remembered them. He was convicted of those armed robberies in 1989 in St. Louis County and sentenced to 15 years. He did everything he could to get out of prison. He wrote letters to the judge, to clergy, and to congressmen. There was no help for Travis. So he resigned himself to his fate in prison and worked as a janitor and in food service. After serving only five years of his 15-year sentence, Travis was paroled in 1994. He moved around a bit when he first got out, but eventually settled back in Ferguson, Missouri, living in a house that belonged to his mother. He owned a 2000 Mitsubishi Eclipse and a 1991 Blue Chevy Cavalier. Travis wasn't out long before he violated his parole. In fact, Travis violated his parole a number of times after his release in 1994. Once in 1998 and again in 2000 for possession of crack and a failed drug test for cocaine use. This also put him back in prison for a few months at the end of 2001. When he wasn't in jail or prison, Travis worked as a waiter at various fine dining restaurants, including the Mayfair Hotel in St. Louis. Apparently, he was very good at his job and often made up to $300 a night in tips, but his co-workers thought he was weird. They stated that he paid a lot of attention to media coverage on the women who were being murdered and dumped in the area. They said he would make comments about certain locations being good places to dump cars or bodies and he seemed to be fixated on the number of bodies turning up in the bi-state areas. During this period of time, Travis was actually engaged to be married, but for some reason his fiance left him. When this happened, Travis became very upset and he was no longer able to contain his evil nature. Travis spent a lot of time on his computer visiting illegal websites on the dark web. One of his favorites was Thraldom. On this website, he would read about how to clean up a death scene or learn new techniques for torture, like slow starvation. According to the book, 
by State Strangler, quote, This site features extreme bondage, pain infliction, control techniques, deviant sexual behavior, and methods of killing. Thraldom means having control over a slave or subject, unquote. On June 4, 2002, preparation for the apprehension and arrest of Maury Travis was in full swing. At this point, authorities had Travis under 24-hour police surveillance while they obtained the necessary search warrants. While investigators had Travis under surveillance, they observed him taking the trash out and looking very suspicious. His eyes are darting from side to side as if he thought someone might be watching. Ah, but someone was watching, the homicide detectives. Detectives used a Midwest Waste truck driver to help retrieve the trash bag that Travis had thrown out. It happened to be trash day on that particular day and detectives took advantage of the timing. The trash that Travis had thrown out was secretly picked up and stored securely inside the trash truck. Once it was in police custody, it was taken into evidence, photographed, examined, and sent to the lab for further testing. Finally, on June 7th, 2002, at 7 a.m., homicide detectives, FBI agents, and the FBI evidence recovery team all went to Travis's house in Ferguson, Missouri. Authorities surrounded the house, then knocked on the door. They announced, police, search warrant. They could see that someone was peeking through the blinds and looking out the window. They instructed this person to open the door, which he did. They were greeted by a man who was still groggy and very angry. They asked if he was Maury Travis, and he said yes. Travis was very upset and asked, What the fuck do you want? Authorities stated, You know why we're here. The officers entered the house and explained to Travis that he was not under arrest, but they did have a search warrant for his house and property. Once detectives were inside his home, they noticed that it was immaculate. One detective commented that it looked like something out of Better Homes and Gardens. As the search progressed, police found a female neighbor in one of the bedrooms. Her name was Kim Williams. Apparently, she and Travis had a sexual relationship. She was not one of his victims. She was escorted out of the house and taken to the police station to be interviewed. At the police station, Kim explained that she first met Toby, as she called him, when he was only six years old and that their families lived next door to each other when they were kids. As the years went by, they moved and lost touch with each other. In March of 2002, after Travis was released from prison again for his parole violation, they got reacquainted and started dating. She also told police about a recent event that sounded pretty scary. Kim stated that one morning she saw a naked, bleeding girl running from his house. When she asked him about the incident, Travis told her that the girl was trying to rob him and he hit her. He also said when he grabbed at her clothing to try and stop her, her clothes came off, and that's why she was naked. The police were called, and Travis was arrested, but the woman was scared and declined to press charges. Kim admitted that they had a sexual relationship, but said their sex life was pretty vanilla, even though Travis claimed to like rough sex. 
Kim said it never happened with them. No role-playing, no bondage, nothing kinky. But she did say they both liked to watch porn. Travis's house had a main floor and a basement. Travis grumbled to the cops as they walked into the living room. Man, it's seven in the morning. They all sat down in the living room and detectives proceeded to question Travis, or at least try. When they asked Travis where he was on a certain day, he would just turn it around and ask them, where were they? Where did you go to school? And he would ask, where did you go to school? Travis asked detectives again why they wanted to talk to him and why they were searching his house. Detectives told Travis that this was all related to a letter and a computer-generated map that he had sent to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper regarding a murder victim. Detectives informed Travis that they knew he was the person who downloaded the map and sent it to the reporter. When Travis heard this, he said nothing, no comment. He didn't deny or admit anything. While the interview with Travis continued, the officers blocked off the entire area around his house and both cars with yellow crime scene tape. They were dressed in white hazmat suits with masks and goggles. They were moving from room to room, taking pictures and video. They even brought in cadaver dogs. In the midst of all this activity, Travis was becoming visibly distressed and could be heard muttering under his breath, damn computer, and I'm toast. Detectives handed a set of mugshot photos to Travis and asked him if he recognized any of the women. He said, no, nah, I don't know any of them, and handed the photos back. Detectives continued their questioning when Travis interrupted them and asked to see the pictures of the dead bitches again. The detectives looked at Travis and said, nobody told you they were dead. Travis was pretty stressed out with all the police activity around his house and asked detectives if they could go downtown. Detectives agreed and escorted Travis out to their police car where he sat in the back with another detective. After everyone was in the car, Travis said he wanted to go to Illinois. When the detectives asked him why, Travis said he was going to give them what they wanted, what they've been asking for. At this point, detectives read Travis's Miranda rights just in case. But as they approached the East St. Louis exit, Travis backed out. He told detectives he was done cooperating and told them to take him to jail. At the same time, he was muttering under his breath about the fucking computer. I'm going to jail, and what do I tell my mother? When detectives asked Travis again if he would like to show them where the women are located, Travis swore at them and continued muttering. Detectives had no choice but to bring Travis into the station. When they got to the station, authorities were ready for Travis. They had prepared a room that was set up to look like a war room. It had charts, graphs, crime scene photos, and files spread out. They walked Travis into the room but didn't sit down. They only stayed long enough for Travis to take it all in and see how much effort was being put into the investigation. When they were sure they had made an impact, they redirected Travis to a different room, pretending like they had accidentally entered the war room when they should have been going to an interview room. In the interview room, Travis was very uncooperative. He denied knowing anything about anything. 
he continued to mutter and make comments about being fucked. As Travis is being questioned, the detectives are trying to get a DNA sample without Travis knowing. They want to do a preliminary check against DNA found on some of the evidence that they had collected earlier. One of the detectives brought him a can of Diet Pepsi, which was picked up from the trash can after they left the interview room. During the interview, Travis continued to be belligerent and snarky. Detectives changed their interview strategy a couple of times trying to get Travis to cooperate, but no luck. Travis tried to take control of the interview being a control freak, but detectives pushed back. In the end, Travis stated that he wanted an attorney and he was done talking and wanted to go to jail. Before he was taken away to jail, Travis again stated that if they got him a public defender, he would talk to them. They agreed. While they waited for the attorney to arrive, Travis began rambling on about his need to help his mother understand what had happened to him. According to the book, By State Strangler, he said, quote, Man, I've been this way for a long time. Ever since I was a kid, I just knew I'd kill some folks, just didn't know how damn many. He said, It's not my fault, man, I'm sick. Unquote. Eventually, two public defenders showed up. Unfortunately for detectives, the attorneys advised Travis not to talk with them, and Travis listened. Once it was clear that Travis would not be talking with detectives, there was nothing left to do but get him processed. Travis was booked into the jail, but due to his unpredictable behavior, he was placed on suicide watch. This investigation was just gaining some serious traction and they wanted to make sure Travis didn't get away from them. On suicide watch, guards are supposed to be checking his cell every 15 minutes. It's not clear if a check was missed or if there was a blind spot that prevented the guard from seeing the cell clearly. But despite the extra precautions in place, Travis still managed to commit suicide. Travis left a suicide note addressed to his mother from the book by State Strangler, quote, Dear Mom, I'm sorry for the pain this has caused you and the family. My death seems to be the only way out and a fast end to all the publicity. You are the best mother a man can have, but I've been sick for a long time, sick in the head since I was about 14. I don't know why, why I was sick. I've never felt normal or happy at any time in my life. I think about the life I lead and what's ahead of me. This seems to be the best solution for all involved, especially me, because I won't spend the rest of my life locked up or worse, let them kill me with a needle. Tell Grandma Marina, James, and everybody I love them dearly. I love you the most, but you know that. Forever your son, Toby Travis. To whom it may concern, Please give this to my mother. P.S. It's also proof that you guys didn't kill me. Referring to law enforcement. Unquote. Even though Travis was now dead, the investigation was not. Police continued to search his property, going over it with a fine-tooth comb. In the search for evidence, police took books, papers, and notes found in the basement. They seized a computer, a stun gun, 
ligatures, ropes, belts spattered with what looked like blood, women's underwear and wigs, and videotapes. A number of these items that were taken into evidence contained material that was later matched to Travis through DNA analysis. Yvonne Cruz and Brenda Beasley were identified and connected via DNA found in semen which Travis left on or in their bodies. Police also took both of Travis's cars into evidence. The car tires from each of his cars matched the tire imprints found on two of the murder victims, Betty James and Alyssa Greenwade. They also found plans for constructing a torture chamber in his basement with two cells using concrete blocks and instructions for dealing with his captives. There was a hand-drawn schematic of the proposed construction of the two cells. The notes on the paper also contained his thoughts on how he would restrain the women. He talked about how he would feed them or not feed them and have them wear adult diapers so he wouldn't have to clean up after them. On his computer, the forensic examination found that Travis was a regular on numerous sadism and bondage sites. Travis knew how to access the dark web where he always visited websites which catered to those interested in bondage and torture. Detectives described Travis's house as being immaculate on the main floor where the living room and bedrooms are located. The basement was another story. They described the basement as a torture and or death chamber. The most chilling piece of evidence was found in a secret compartment in a wall in the basement. The compartment in the wall was located behind a bookcase. In here, they found a box which contained 24 VHS tapes. Most of the tapes contained various sexual acts with various women, but no bondage, assault, or abuse. But one tape, which was titled Your Wedding Day, contained an hour and a half of actual wedding footage but then cut over to footage of Travis in the act of torturing and raping several women and what appears to be the actual murder of two women. All of the women on the tape were eventually identified as murder victims that Travis had dumped in Illinois and Missouri. When the tape cuts away from the wedding scene, the tape shows Travis holding the video camera and talking with one of his victims. The following descriptions of the content found on the video titled Your Wedding Day are from the book by State Strangler. Quote, on the tape, you see a young woman who appears to be about 19. She's nude and her hands are handcuffed behind her back. She has leg irons with a chain connecting them and the handcuffs. Travis then makes the female, who is on her knees in the floor of the basement, perform oral sex. During the act, he is seen hitting her with his hand, open and closed fists. After the sex act is complete, Travis puts duct tape over the victim's mouth and eyes and pushes her backwards, and she falls to the floor. Travis leaves the view of the camera and reappears a short time later with a belt. He approaches the victim and puts the belt through the belt buckle and places it around her neck. Travis then pulls on the belt buckle until the buckle breaks. He pulls the belt from around her neck and reapplies the belt pulling from the opposite ends. The female is strangled to death 
not quickly. Travis pulls on the belt until the victim loses consciousness, then repeats his actions. It takes about 20 minutes for him to finish the act. Travis then sits next to the female as she's lying on her back and states, This is first kill. Number one. First kill was 19 years old. Name? I don't know. I don't give a fuck. First kill was nice. The victim is eventually identified as 19-year-old Cassandra Walker. The horror continues. Quote, The next victim appears to be about 30 to 40 years old. She is nude. Her hands are free. She is wearing a military cold-weather pile cap, and her eyes are covered with some type of cloth-like material. She is wearing a yellow metal chain necklace and a charm butterfly. She is on the floor facing Travis. He is sitting on the couch and she performs oral sex on Travis. After completing the act, Travis stands up and he has a black plastic item in his hand. It could be a stun gun. The next scene is in the bedroom. The female is on the bed on her stomach. Her hands are secured to the headboard and Travis is engaged in anal sex with his victim. He fondles her vagina whilst holding the camera and filming close-ups of his activities. He replaces the camera on the tripod and retrieves a Corona beer bottle and inserts the neck into her vagina. During all of the demented activities, he had the female repeat, You are my master. It pleases me to serve you. Unquote. Travis taunts this victim, telling her that she is in big trouble, that he's going to kill her. He asks her if she has children, and when she says through her tears, yes, she does, he asks her, who's raising her kids? And she says she is. You can hear the absolute terror in her voice. Travis is irate when he hears this and tells her that she's not raising them. She is doing nothing but lying on her back getting money for crack. At this point, there's a break in the tape, and then you see Travis placing a chain around her neck and begin to choke her. He can be heard telling her to shut up, that he's not done with her yet. Teresa Wilson was another victim found on Travis's gruesome home movie. With the camera in one hand, he drags Teresa down the stairs to his basement. Her head is bouncing off each of the steps, all 13 of them. She is described as wearing only a pair of skimpy underwear. Her eyes and hands are bound. She is in a great deal of pain and terrified out of her mind. In his hand, Travis is carrying a toilet plunger. He asks her, quote, Who's your daddy? She responds, You are my master. You are my master. I am to do whatever it is that pleases you. Travis struck the female a number of times with the wooden end of the plunger. He then inserted the plunger into her vagina and broke the handle. Half the handle inside the woman, the other half held by Travis. The victim cried out in pain. His recording captured the sound and sight of the handle 
penetrating her colon and lower abdomen. This woman, Teresa Wilson, died a painful and humiliating death. Unquote. Then the tape moves on to Travis's other victims. There are actually eight women depicted on the wedding video. All of them were tortured and sodomized by Travis. The unimaginable cruelty and brutality these women were subjected to by Travis on this videotape is very similar for each of them. The basement itself was nasty. It had the smell of death. Officers stated that it smelled like bodily fluids, dried blood, and the faint smell of air freshener. But the air freshener couldn't hide the smell of death. This place just looks creepy. In photographs, it looks like an old 70s or 80s basement and or family room with the dark, almost black wood paneling and thick sculpted carpeting that is a pinkish-white mauve blend. There are a couple of stuffed chairs and the material is a light maroon crushed velvet. There's a big square floor to ceiling support beam in the basement, which is also made of the same dark wood paneling. Travis used his many various restraints to secure his victims to that beam. All kinds of restraints were found, cuffs, chains, leg irons, and padlocks. There was also duct tape and rope. There was blood spatter on the walls, ceilings, and carpets. On the wall, there were also several layers of paint, and each layer had been spattered with blood and bodily fluids, and Travis would just paint over the mess again and again. They also found a brown and white backpack in the basement as well. It contained ligatures, duct tape, and items that could be used to restrain a person. Detectives believe this to be Travis's rape and torture kit. As far as law enforcement can tell, Travis was active for about two years. The first body was found in July of 2000, and he was arrested in June of 2002. There was a short break at the end of 2001 of just a few months when Travis was back in prison for a parole violation. Police believe that Travis would troll the stroll. He was looking for prostitutes looking to sell their bodies, often for a measly 20 bucks. He would pick up a prostitute and oftentimes bring her back to the house in Ferguson, Missouri. Sometimes he would give the women crack to smoke and then have consensual sex with them. Apparently, he did let some of the women go. But for the ones he kept, they were literally plunged into the depths of hell. He would take them captive, binding them with ropes and handcuffs and covering their eyes with duct tape. He would then begin to torment them, either in the bedroom or after dragging them downstairs to the basement and shackling them to a wooden post. He would tell the women he was going to keep them for a week. He would torment them, asking about their kids and berating them for being bad mothers. He would sometimes keep these women, whom he had kidnapped, in his house for days, where he would make them do drugs and physically abuse them in a variety of ways, including punching and kicking, until he eventually strangled them to death. Based on the videos, notes, and plans found in Travis's basement, it is clear to see that Travis loved his basement. Talk about a man cave his own personal chamber of horrors. It seems he also believed he was doing society a favor 
by ridding them of these drug addicts and prostitutes. Travis thought of these women as disposable and less than human. In reality, Travis is the one that could be described as less than human. In fact, he is a real monster. Using one of his cars, Travis dumped the bodies of these women close to the home of his mother, father, and himself. In at least two of the cases, Travis ran over the women with his car, just as an extra measure of humiliation. But, like so many serial killers, it was not enough for Travis to torture and kill these women. He had an overwhelming need to be recognized for his accomplishments. This is why he sent the letter to St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter Bill Smith. Fortunately, Travis wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Authorities were able to quickly identify Travis by tracking down the website and IP address associated to his computer where the map was accessed and then printed. Travis, like many people, thought his web browsing was private. What he didn't realize is that every time a computer user connects to the internet, a unique number is assigned to the transaction. This is the IP address. In some cases, websites delete the IP address very quickly, but sometimes it's recorded and stored. When Travis killed himself, he took so many answers with him. He never gave the police any information. His motives, methods, number of women, names of women, and location of the women all went to the grave with Travis. Investigators are forced to use the evidence collected from Travis's home and cars and from the bodies of his victims to piece together as much of the story as they can. Police believe Travis killed between 12 and 20 women. Travis claims to have killed 17, but only 12 bodies are actually tied to him so far. Unfortunately, it is unlikely that the full truth will ever be known. Prior to killing himself, Travis was charged with two federal counts of kidnapping for allegedly taking victims Alyssa Greenwade and Betty James across state lines. The federal complaint also listed six women who were tortured and then strangled. State charges of homicide were pending in the suspected deaths of several more women. Of course, because Travis is dead, there was no trial. Authorities vowed to keep their files open despite Travis's death and to continue to examine the evidence. As of January 2022, it doesn't look as if much additional progress has been made. To top everything off, in a very twisted turn of events, Travis's mother put the House of Horrors up for rent in 2014. His mother still owned this house in Ferguson, Missouri, and in Missouri, landlords do not have to disclose information about crimes that occurred on the property. So she did nothing wrong legally. But was this moral? When the current tenant found out about the home's history, she was mortified. A friend had shared with her the fact that a serial killer used to live in this house. She found out her basement was used as a torture chamber for several women and that two of them may have been killed there as well. As you can imagine, she wanted out of that house and out of that lease. She tried to get out of the lease, but Travis's mother was not being the least bit cooperative. 
the tenant had to recruit the help of the St. Louis Housing Authority to help her get out of a rental contract. Eventually, they succeeded and the tenant was finally freed from her contract. So, as you probably already know, when you surf the net, you're never alone. And the next time you go out and enjoy a nice dinner at an upscale restaurant, there may be more to your charming waiter than meets the eye. Thanks again for tuning in to Crime Happens. All episodes are researched, written, recorded, and audio mixed by me. Crime Happens is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Check out my website at crimehappens.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram at crime underscore happens. I'll be back very soon with an all new episode. Until then, take care.